Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator John Cavanaugh. I do not have an electric car, but I do have a the, what I say is the smallest car you can get three car seats in. Um, and I have four kids, so <laughs> getting three car seats in my car, I can only take three of my kids at once. Oh, my kids love composting. They get mad if you uh, don't do, uh, you know, if you if you were to accidentally throw a watermelon uh, rind into the garbage can, they would reprimand me. Kavanaugh talks about his upbringing with a father who served in Congress, how his worldview was shaped, and how he's learned to enact that worldview in legislation that can pass in our legislature. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator John Kavanaugh. We talk about growing up with a dad who served in the House of Representatives, how he shaped his worldview, and the tricky business of trying to bring progressive policies to a Senate body in a very red state. Here is my conversation with Senator John Kavanaugh. Well, thank you for being on the show today. Um, as, as I told you before we started recording, my dad's been telling me for a year or so. He's like, you got to get John Kavanaugh. Why, why, haven't, why hasn't John Kavanaugh been on? So you made an impression on him, I guess. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, so and the name John Kavanaugh has some history with it, right? So your dad uh, served in Congress, right? Yes. And he's also named John Kavanaugh. Are you junior then? I am junior, uh, which is an oddity because he's the third. Oh, Okay. That's confusing for me to figure out. So how did you end up being the one named John? Because you've got a big family, right? Uh, I do. I'm the second boy. The oldest boy is Patrick, and then there's three girls and then me. So I think, um, you know, get while the getting's good. Yeah. Well, and so you, your dad was in Congress. How old were you when your dad was in Congress? I wasn't born yet. You weren't born yet? Okay. So it was just kind of looming. I assume that kind of that has some impact, right? I think it did. I don't know when I realized that he had been in Congress. It, you know, growing up, I guess it was just always a thing you knew, but I don't know exactly when I found that out. But politics was a big part of our life growing up. How so? Well, we always had candidates or people who were running for office coming through the House to, you know, have events or meet with him or uh, going to political events. We were just, that was a, a fact of life for us. So how did that shape your worldview then? Because some people grow up and they don't think about necessarily like legislation so much. It's like there are probably issues that are on their mind. But how did that start to, you know, shape the way that you saw the world? Well, it made me certainly conscious of the fact that everybody has a responsibility to take what action they can. Mm -hmm. And so it takes all forms. And I've seen over those years people participate in lots of different ways. But it really demonstrates to you that anybody can do something as long as they're willing to. So, like, was there pressure for your siblings then to go into politics? No, I think there was pressure not to. Why? <laughs> Why is that? Uh, because it takes a lot of time. It's consuming. The, I think one of the reasons my dad was no longer in Congress by the time I was born was because of how much time it takes away from your family. So was that, I mean, it takes time from your family, but, I mean, the idea would be that you're, you're giving up some time with your family in order to have some kind of, you know, tangible good for the country out of it, right? I mean, did, did, that was a trade-off he made? Oh, of course, and that's the trade-off everybody makes when they run for office uh, and serve. Um, and it's just a question of whether you're willing to make that sacrifice. Did you ever, like, romanticize that as a kid? Um, which like just part? going off to, you know, save the country, you know, even if, even if it was sort of difficult and you weren't encouraged to do it? Uh, no, I think I always had a realistic view of what politics is like. <laughs> so I feel like there's, there's, there must have been some negative experiences then, right? I mean, other than just him being gone, right? What, what were some of the things that were informing that? Oh, well, I mean, when you're a public figure, people have opinions about you. And they are mm -hmm. always – people have their uh, – are very willing to share negative opinions about things that you're doing or positions you've taken or things you've done. Uh, and so, you know, you see that uh, not just with people I'm related to but with uh, every other politician that you've – 
seen in uh, public life. And so that's part of the sacrifice as well. It's not just a time away from your family, but it's the public scrutiny of normal activity. Yeah, I mean, I guess you have to have, your convictions have to be strong enough that you feel like it's worth potentially the backlash you'll get, right? And so I think one of the things that's difficult, especially for sort of like young people who from an early age want to be in politics, is some of them conflate the idea of being a politician with being a celebrity, and they chase the headlines. And others, you sort of just have to have a strong opinion on things, and it has to come from somewhere. And that strikes me as something that's just, it's going to take time and experience before you can really feel like, okay, I, I know how to fix this. I even know what the problem is, right? Yeah. Well, certainly to be willing to put yourself out there, you have to have a strong conviction about wanting to accomplish something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not worth it otherwise. In every conversation anybody has with a prospective candidate or or yourself when you're thinking about running is, is all of the other things, all of the work, all of the time, and all of the, the things you subject yourself to worth the things that you are hoping to accomplish. Um, And so that's a balance. Some people, you know, find worthwhile and some people don't and ultimately decide not to run, though there are lots of people who think about it and decide against it. Um, Obviously, I decided to run. (laughs) Was that something that you had in the back of your mind even as you were going to law school? No. Um, I had always, I'd been involved in politics. I'd done a lot of things and I'd always thought my role was in some other position. Uh, working for elected officials, um, working on campaigns, or I was a public defender for seven years, and you know that form of service was uh, appealing to me, and I thought that was how I could serve, uh, and I did. And then you ultimately do that for long enough, and you realize that there's a lot more work to be done and a lot more good that can be done by serving in place like the legislature. So, okay, if we if we take a step back, then what was it that drew you to law in general? Uh, well, helping people. So I went to Vermont Law School, studied environmental law, uh, and um, I always say the reason I was drawn to environmental law and public def- defender uh, is that they both, the criminal justice system and environment, uh, disproportionately affect those who are least able to fight for themselves. And so being a public defender, you represent indigent people in the criminal justice system uh, who get, um, you know, a, a bad shake, basically, in the system. Uh, and so that's an opportunity to stand up for people and fight for justice and for people's rights and to preserve uh, people's rights. And that's the same thing in environmental uh, issues is that environmental issues are most likely disproportionately affecting um, poor and, and uh, marginalized people. Um, as I said, I just came here from Meade, Nebraska, where they have uh, – there's already a Superfund site there, and then they have this uh, ethanol plant – that had been um, basically dumping some toxic materials into the groundwater and onto the soils there for years. Uh, and Mead's about a community of about 700 people, you know, 25 miles outside of Omaha. Uh, and they were there today, were just members of the community asking to be heard, looking for answers. Um, and the, you know, they're up against a state that didn't take action and a corporation that is invested in agribusiness in a state that is very favorable to agribusiness. And so that's, you know, not an uncommon situation in environmental issues. Were there things that you encountered before you decided to study that, though, that sort of pushed you in that environmental direction as opposed to a different area of law? Well, I had exposure to environmental issues growing up, uh, spending a lot of time going to the, see the Sandhill Crane migration in western Nebraska was very formative for me um, and exposure to you know environmental issues on a national level kind of there was a you know big push in the 90s to uh, be more conscious of those issues and starting recycling in the city of Omaha happened when I was I think in grade school or high school and so you know I just was always conscious of that being an important frontier in evolving issues and obviously climate change has become uh, a much more uh, urgent issue in the last 20 years. It certainly was an urgent issue when I started law school. Uh, and so it's a big uh, thing that's facing our country and our, our civilization as a whole going forward. And so it's an important issue to be involved in. Uh, and um, I'm interested in things that can help people and not really necessarily ways that I can make money, I guess. 
Well, the urgency is kind of in and of itself controversial, right? Because some people want to, like you, you say on your website, it's an existential threat, and yet a lot of people don't seem to treat Like, you know, it was a big deal when Lindsey Graham acknowledged that climate change, that global warming exists, and that was this year. So there's a disparity between that approach, like, oh, he's acknowledging that it's a thing and calling it an existential threat that we have to care about, right? So, I mean, how do you feel about the fact that it's become this politicized issue where even the... Uh, I have a tweet. Megan Hunt recently tweeted, uh, not enough rural senators believe in climate science to pass any preventative policy at the state level. The math isn't there for votes. So, I mean, it's just this kind of, I don't know, I feel sort of like it's like looking into the void sometimes where it just feels sort of hopeless at times that people, uh, if if there is an existential risk, you can't even get people to acknowledge it. And then how do you move on from there? That's a good question. So, I I think that there's a distinction between recognizing that climate change is happening and recognizing that humans are causing it and therefore have a responsibility to take action. Um, And so more people are willing to recognize that the climate is changing, but they are not willing to recognize that we are a substantial factor in that. Uh, And it becomes harder and harder to deny that climate change is happening. Um, I mean, if you just look at, was it last week in... Portland and the Northwest, where they had unbelievable record temperatures above 100 degrees uh, there, which is could be catastrophic for their their immediate climate, the environment of that the the you know natural life there, and including the humans that live there. Um, and so, the more events like that that happen, the more hundred-year floods that we experience in, in time frames that are less than 100 years. We had. I think it's something like 300-year floods in the last 20 years. Um, And so the more events like that that happen, the more people are going to be willing to take action uh, and respond to it. And the question is whether we do that fast enough to actually head off a major catastrophe or if we are, you know, become too late. And so that's why it's so urgent that we take action sooner rather than later uh, because every year that we put it off is a, you know, another year that we haven't taken any action. So how, I mean, how optimistic are you that people will wake up enough to actually do something about it? Oh, well, I'm very optimistic that people, I mean, I, I guess it's your question at the Nebraska legislature level or the national level. I'll stick either, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I think that the national uh, level is going to move a lot faster than, than the state of Nebraska. Um, I, I do think that there is room for some progress at the state level. Um, I mean, I had a climate study bill this year, and the biggest pushback I had was the, the um, amount of money and who was doing the study. It wasn't whether or not we should do something. Um, but again, that was a study about opportunities for things that we can do, which is, can be efficiencies, can be um, different types of uh, practices. Um, I've spent the summer going around the state of Nebraska looking at different types of uh, agricultural practices that are more environmentally conscious, um, you know, uh, conservation grazing practices, uh, interseeding practices on uh, corn and soybeans, uh, just to see what things people are doing that make economic sense for them, um, but also make environmental sense and make, you know, the major industry of Nebraska uh, more environmentally friendly. And so, you know, of course, we need to take serious action, but we also need to take action that people are going to be willing to take. And so we got to find both of those things. Well, so it seems to me that part of um, the, the conventional wisdom on some of the issues are that it's almost irrelevant whether some of the politicians who either don't want to acknowledge global warming or are skeptical about where it comes from, it's not necessarily coming from looking at science so much as it's coming from where money and politics comes from, right? So, like, if, you know, to pick on Lindsey Graham again, you know, is does he actually have, a, you know, like a scientifically informed opinion, or is it based on where money's coming from that goes to him? I don't know, right? But, like, as an example, you, you have another issue, I mean, on your site, as far as general issues go, where you talk about money and politics. Do you see those issues as intertwined in a way that's maybe creating more of a problem than there needs to be? Sorry, guys. It's okay. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think money in politics is problematic. I do think that uh, we need to fix that for lots of reasons, not just climate change. 
um, I think that one of the big problems we've had is uh, a small set of very wealthy people investing in, uh, you know, science that is uh, uh, not sound to justify their position about climate change, and then they feed that to politicians that they fund um, so that they can, you know, have at least a colorable argument to support their opposition. Uh, Ultimately, the biggest problem is that if you recognize that climate change is happening and that we are contributing to it, we have an obligation to take remediation action. Uh, And that's what I think holds a lot of people back, is that they're scared about what action would be required if we were honest with ourselves. What kind of actions do you think are required? Well, I think we need to be investing in entirely carbon neutral energy sources. We need to be uh, encouraging every business, not just agriculture, but all industries to decrease their emissions and find smarter ways, cleaner ways to produce whatever product it is. We need to be focused on efficiency. Uh, You know, we have uh, tremendous efficient appliances and lighting sources and things like that now that, you know, we need to make sure that that's the standard. We have a lot of power, especially at the federal level, for things like uh, fuel fuel efficiency standards and you know, uh, standards on other appliances and things that we can take um, to do that. So I think we need to be doing everything we can to decrease our output, but we need to find ways to also increase our, uh, I guess, sequestration, but also just planting more trees, more plants, more, you know, the gr- decreasing our destruction of the rainforest. Obviously, that's an international issue, not a national issue, but there are things the United States can, of course, do in that regard. So I think we need to be doing everything we can uh, to minimize our impact and start making progress towards repairing the damage that we have caused. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Nebraska State Senator John Kavanaugh. What are some of the things that the state could be doing if there, if the math did add up that would, uh, that would address climate change? Well, one of the reasons I proposed that study is I'm not an expert on that, and so I think it would be good for somebody who is an expert on what all of our options are. But the state can certainly work with, you know, we have uh, public power in the state of Nebraska has worked on um, particularly, you know, OPBD, um, Lincoln Public Power, uh, and uh, the NPBD have, you know, set standards themselves, uh, increasing their renewable energy sources, uh, decreasing their, you know, coal and natural gas production. Um, but we need to, we, we can do those things. We can help, help them do that as a state. We can incentivize individuals to be more efficient uh, in their own homes. But, you know, there's a lot of, you know, bigger ideas. We've learned in the last year about people, you know, not needing to go into the office as much. Those types of the things can also be um, practices that will decrease consumption of fossil fuels and, and improve um you know, the, the climate um, profile of the state. So how much, like, in your in your personal life, then, does this make an impact? So, like, do you have an electric car, or do you do any, like, do you have a lawn, some of those types of questions? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I compost, um, recycle everything I can. I do not have an electric car, but I do have a, the, what I say is the smallest car you can get three car seats in. Um, and I have four kids, so <laughs> getting three car seats in my car, I can only take three of my kids at once. Um, yeah, and it, I have a very small lawn. I have uh, mostly my backyard is all raised beds for my uh, garden. Um, so it's much personal. And then, of course, all of my lights are, uh, most of them are LEDs. I've, you know, some of them are still compact fluorescents that are still hanging on from a few years ago. Uh, and I'm enrolled in the OPPD program that, uh, you know, allows them to, on very hot days, you know, to, to do the... Um, uh, they call it rush hour, where they can turn off your air conditioning, you know, in the peak hours, so that uh, they don't have to turn on another power plant for peaking hours, which is a good program. Uh, so, you know, participating as much as I I can. How do your kids like that? Oh, my kids love composting. They get mad if you uh, don't do, uh, you know, if you if you were to accidentally throw a 
watermelon uh, rind into the garbage can, they would reprimand me. That's what, yeah, I've, I've talked about it on the show before. It is kind of one of those just things that rewires your brain. Once you switch to thinking about that and noticing it, it's really hard to unnotice. Yeah. yeah um, well, okay, so when you got into uh, – you, you, so you got your degree um, – let's see. So you studied environmental law. Um, did you – anticipate doing something more directly related to that or was the public defender serving people something that you always sort of saw for yourself um i well explored both options um i did do some uh energy policy work for the first two years out of law school before i moved back to nebraska and then when i moved back i became a public defender why'd you move back um ultimately uh you know from here my wife's from here we were having our first kid and uh, we always wanted to be back in Nebraska when we were starting a family and so that was the right time before our daughter was born is to move back to Nebraska. You got all your family here to sort of be yes. around them? My wife has a big family here and I have a big family here. So what was the, so you said you were a public defender for, was it seven years? Yes. And then did something happen? Was there an event that made you decide you needed to jump into the legislature? Uh, it wasn't one particular thing, but being a public defender for that long, you have a lot of interaction with state statute, and you have a lot of interaction with the changes the legislature makes and uh, exposure to the conversations about why we make those changes. And, you know, I heard a lot of conversation about how we needed to, you know, obviously decrease uh, the number of people in prison. We needed to figure out how to get people more services, and I was not seeing that reflected on the ground or reflected in, in the statutes. Uh, and so, you know, over uh, years of frustration over the, the, that experience, ultimately decided that, you know, I could do more for the people I was serving as a public defender by running for legislature than continuing to serve as a public defender. And have you found that that's been a satisfying trajectory? It, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't think I've solved all the problems. <laughs> um, but I do think that, that uh, the math does work out in that regard, that I think that being in the legislature this one session, um, you know, I was able to pass a couple of laws and you know, make some changes to a couple other laws that passed that uh, I think will very much, you know, you can quantify, you can look and see people that you will have helped. And that is great. And then, the, you know, as you make more changes to the laws over the years and help craft other laws, I think that, yeah, there's, on the whole, I can, I have begun to make more progress in the regard that I wanted to, and I think I can see on the horizon the possibility to make even more. Okay, so when you get in, when you get elected, what were the main priorities and laws that you wanted to propose? So I proposed, I want to say 15 or 17 bills. Um, Most of them were criminal justice related. A uh, couple of uh, environmental-related issues, and then some landlord-tenant bills, um, and so they all essentially were focused on equity and and justice um, and uh, access to opportunity. So the, the the criminal justice bills were ones that I were specifically, from my experience as a public defender, uh, times I'd seen or ways I'd seen the system not work properly and disproportionately affect people. Um, and uh, none of those have passed yet, but they're still pending into the next session. Uh, and then the landlord-tenant bills, uh, similar, you know, the, the one bill that I did pass was uh, had a number of parts to it, but uh, the one, you know, kind of came out of my public defender experience was the uh, when someone is a victim of domestic violence um, and they can be uh, evicted as a result of a crime being committed in their apartment um, or the, uh, or they would be stuck in a lease even if they vacate the apartment. And so that bill, I'd, I'd actually seen situations arise in that from my experience. And so that bill would uh, make it easier for people to get out of a lease when they've been a victim of domestic violence or to uh, afford them some sort of protection from being evicted if they didn't want to leave the apartment. Um, and so that to me was an equity issue that was fixing a, a problem for some people that I'd seen be disproportionately affected by the system. Um, and then I had, I had the climate change study bill and then uh, had a net metering bill, which of course is a similar idea of increasing uh, individuals' adoption of uh, cleaner energy. And so, I mean, how were those ideas received by the legislature in general? Um, 
you know, some of uh, my ideas were probably ones that people have proposed before, and, you know, everybody says, well, we've already had this conversation. Um, and then some of them were ones people had not really talked about before and were, uh, had not, I guess, formed an opinion on. Um, but, you know, the, the climate one, I, like I said, it, it's uh, – I was I was surprised at people's reception to it, but it was more that they just were not interested, and, as opposed to opposed to it. Um, and uh, but the criminal justice ones, uh, that is part of a much bigger conversation that we're having as a state, uh, as we discuss building a prison, uh, as we discuss uh, you know the long-term effects of our criminal justice system. And so people are very engaged in that conversation and. Uh, I think are receptive to a number of my ideas and my experience around that. Well, so you've got some other proposals on your site, right, related to that. So one of the ones was talking about uh, systemic racism among the police force, right? So you say here, if police departments are not able to rid themselves of violent racist cops, then we need an independent agency with subpoena power that is able to do so. We have to end qualified immunity so that police who violate constitutional rights can be held accountable in civil court. We need public records of police complaints and mandatory reporting of any use of force so we know who the bad cops are and we can fire them. So that's one of those things. On paper, uh, I feel like that does not seem that controversial, but I bet it is controversial having some of those conversations, right? Yeah, and it depends on who, who the person is that you think is controversial. So, um, and, and in terms of uh, some, some of those things we did make progress on this year, um, you know, the statewide, uh, you know, repository of um, disciplinary action um, and you know uh, so, I mean ultimately I think the issue of civilian oversight there is there is some progress on that as well in the statute although I don't think that goes far enough ending quality immunity is a big conversation we're having as a country right now um, yeah my experience my conversations with um, you know law enforcement folks are that they are uh, obviously concerned about reforms, but they are willing to engage in that conversation. Um, and we'll see where it goes, I guess. Do you think law enforcement's more willing to engage than some of the uh, people in power in, you know, at a government level? Uh, that I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like, if, I guess it depends on, again, who you talk about. I, I haven't talked to the governor about these issues, but I've talked to other members of the legislature, and they are interested and engaged. Um, but I do think one of the issues around law enforcement and why they're willing to engage is that they want to be part of the conversation and uh, not the, you know, the subject of the conversation. You know, if, you're, as if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And that's, I think, their, their approach, and I think that's appropriate. So let's to talk about qualified immunity for a second, can you maybe explain what it is, maybe define qualified immunity and then what you would do about it in order to, uh, or what, what the effect would be? Well, uh, probably not the best person to define qualified immunity, but um, it's essentially that you can't sue somebody, a, a state actor, for their action in their official capacity as a state actor. Um, and that has been you know, extended to um, lots of other state actors as well, not just police. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, we've seen recently uh, a number of bad actors in law enforcement that have been protected by uh, you know, qualified immunity that, that pr prevents them from being held accountable. Uh, we are seeing criminal liability being, you know, imposed in some cases, although I just, I don't know if I was listening to NPR on the drive over here and they were doing the story about um, the the murder in uh, California 10 years ago, uh, and there was the one officer who they ultimately now think should have been charged and wasn't um, because the, sta and the statute of limitations is run, and so then there's no civil liability there. And so qualified immunity would allow for civil liability in those cases. So, that, I mean, that it seems like a lot of people are really, uh, the term qualified immunity gets people riled up in one way or another, right, you know, either for or against. And I guess it, it's something where, 
You seem to not be uh, discouraged by the way that things are as politicized as they tend to be, right? Because it's like my understanding from talking to various people who are involved in government is there are a lot of people who have strong opinions on issues. There are a lot of people who try to be informed on issues and maybe want to have conversations on issues. And I think the unicameral is kind of an interesting, I don't know, maybe metaphor for the whole idea of having a functional conversation, right? Because the unicameral ideally should not be partisan. But oftentimes it becomes a partisan fight and like you watch the live stream sometimes and people are, you know, behaving in immature ways, you know, kind of like yelling at each other about things. Right. But it seems like you're you're not too discouraged. You just feel like that's sort of just part of the process of what you've taken on here. Well, in all aspects of life, you have to deal with the personalities of the individuals you're dealing with. Um, And, you know, I think that if you can take people as they are and and try to speak to them about find what your common ground is and what you're interested in, you might make some progress with them. Obviously, you're not going to change somebody's mind radically, but uh, if you can change their mind incrementally, uh, that maybe is progress that, you know, then there's somewhere room for progress on whatever issue you're trying to accomplish. Uh, and in the legislature, it is nonpartisan and, and uh, it does get some kind times contentious along party lines. Um, but there's also, uh, you know, a number of um, you know, reasonable uh, people on the other side that come along uh, and we can get th- some things done. Obviously, we overrode, um, you know, the governor's veto a couple of times this year. Uh, and, you know, you couldn't do that without Democrats and Republicans. And so there is obviously room for progress and there's room for things that we can do together. Um, but you have to, you do have to talk to people about things that they care about. Do you think that party identification gets in the way of actually having productive conversations a lot of the time? I think it hurts it, yeah. What's, why, do, why do we need parties beyond the money structure that's established? I don't think we do. I, I actually proposed a bill, that one of my other bills, I guess I forgot, uh, was to eliminate partisan primaries. I don't, I don't think that uh, partisan primaries should be a function of the state. I think that political parties are a personal organization that people belong to, and I belong to the Democratic Party. And I would continue to, even if, you know, I ran a nonpartisan race. I didn't need to be a member of a party, but I am. Uh, but I don't think that the state of Nebraska should pay for a primary election to determine who the Republican nominee or the Democratic nominee is for Congress or for governor or for Senate. Um, I, I think that that uh, is just not the rule for the state of Nebraska or for any state. And I do think that ultimately uh, it does hurt politics. I think the Nebraska legislature is better than other legislatures in this country because even though we all have party registrations, we are elected nonpartisanly, and people do take that to heart. I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator John Kavanaugh. Riverside Chats will be back after this break. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstreams Communications Director Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstreams Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstreams Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstreams and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstream's crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstreams everywhere. Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center.
and welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Today I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator John Kavanaugh. Here is the rest of our conversation. What do you make of the fact in the recent municipal election in Omaha that I think it was what our district was the one that veered the furthest away from Trump from 2016 to 2020? I think it was like nine points. Uh, But then in the municipal election, Republicans did very well, right? And a lot of the progressive candidates, um, there were ones who were nonpartisan, progressive, challenging some of the Democrats, and then some of the incumbent Republicans did really well. And overall, uh, the participation was down substantially. I mean, what what do you make of it? What happened there? Well, the participation can be down because... City elections are in an off year. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't necessarily know about them. Uh, they're right after the federal election, so there's a bit of a hangover effect uh, where people are sick of elections. Um, I'd like to see us move the city elections onto a regular year schedule as well. I think you get increased participation there. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert on that kind of polling and turnout and that kind of stuff. I mean, some of those ele- the, the districts are drawn to be the West Omaha districts are drawn to be Republican districts and the East Omaha districts are drawn to be Democratic districts. And that might be the explanation on why the Republicans did well in West Omaha and the Democrats did well in East Omaha. Well, you, so gerrymandering is one of the issues you have on your site as well, right? Do you right. want to maybe talk about that? Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, I think, you know, the, the districts should not be drawn by the people who run in them. Uh, uh, the legislature will draw the legislative districts when we come for a special session in September. Uh, and a number of the people who are uh, participating uh, in that the drawing, I mean, all of us, all 49 of us will participate, and, you know, half of us are up for re-election next year. And so some people don't know if they're going to be drawn into or out of their districts. Um, so you see much better results for up and down the ballot uh, in states that have independent, nonpartisan redistricting. Uh, it doesn't get contentious. It doesn't become uh, a tit-for-tat. Uh, and um, it's just a, that's a better way to do it, I think. Uh, it's a more, I guess, democratic, uh, you know, I guess, uh, way to do it where it's, you're not having elected officials picking their voters. What's, so, what's stopping Nebraska from doing that? Political will. Okay. What, like because it benefits people in power. Right. So I think John McAllister brought the bill this year to create a nonpartisan redistricting committee. Um, it didn't get out of the government committee to even get a hear- a vote on the floor. Uh, it's just opposition from, for the most part, John McAllister's Republican, but mostly Republicans opposed it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, okay, let's take that as an issue then, because you're talking about how you can sort of make incremental progress on a lot of the issues. That one, if it's people in power who would like to stay in power, I mean, that's kind of an archetypal issue. It's difficult to fight that one, right? So, like, how do you how do you start to break away that support? Well, yeah, I mean, it's been that's a historical uh, problem in Nebraska. We've had the same we we face the same problem every ten years, and the problem with redistricting is. Then you forget about it for the next 10 years, and then you come back and you're like, oh, shoot, we should have fixed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I think just continuing uh, to have those conversations with people and and uh, talk to them about why it is, you know, why the legislature functions better because it's nonpartisan. Why, I mean, I think I think that goes hand in hand with, you know, the idea that we should take party out of everything. Um, but uh, y- you just have to continue to build the case and talk to people about it. I think many people, if it were to get a vote on the floor, it would maybe pass is maybe one of the reasons that it doesn't get out of committee. Why doesn't it get a vote on the floor then? Who, who makes that decision? Uh, the committee that, wherever, which committee it's referred to, in this case the government committee, and that committee I, it, I think voted, it was deadlocked, uh, didn't have, you know, it has to have a majority of votes, and I think it voted 4-4, which meant it didn't get a majority of votes to get out of that committee. So it's it's something where... I mean, I mean, do, do have you have you had conversations with uh, with people who would be making that decision, and have you made any progress with them? You know, I didn't have a lot of conversations. I'm not on the committee it was in. Uh, I've talked to Senator McAllister about it, uh, but you know, I yeah, this this session since I didn't come before me, and I I wasn't 
involved in the conversation about it. I didn't talk to those individuals. I did talk to some individuals about my nonpartisan election idea. Uh, and I felt like I, there's progress to be made there, but I think it takes, it'll take more time to convince people that it's not, you know, going to hurt them and it's not intended as a way, you know, a lot of people get in the current political environment, get distrustful of any structural changes uh, made by or proposed by one party or another because they, you know, think the, that it's going to benefit them. And I, you know, propose nonpartisan elections because I think it's the right thing to do, not because I think it'll benefit the Democrats in Nebraska. I think there are instances where you will have statewide elections in that case with two Republicans running against each other statewide. I don't think that's to the benefit of the Democrats in Nebraska. I do think it's to the benefit potentially of voters of Nebraska mm -hmm. uh, to get a more accurate representation. Uh, and I think that the fact that I've proposed it makes some people suspicious that it's intended as something to, to benefit uh, Democrats. So I think, you know, you gotta, you got to continue those conversations. You have to build trust and, and rapport with the individuals. Um, and then you have to, you know, in some instances there are examples of it being done, certain things, not necessarily nonpartisan uh, elections, but in other states where whatever idea you're proposing is being done in a, you know, Democrat or Republican state and they've had a good experience. Um, you know, that's an example in some of the prison reform issues we're talking about is that, you know, states like Texas and Tennessee have made some big strides that maybe Nebraska would be willing to look at that would improve how things function here. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Nebraska State Senator John Kavanaugh. What do you think about it? Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your social media and let us know. Well, it's, so it seems to me that you are interested in making kind of the, the intellectual, logical argument uh, why nonpartisanship makes sense. But it, do, you, do you find a lot of people just like the sort of sports element of politics? Like, I want my team to win, and that's how I define part of my identity, so I want to root for my guy? Oh, that's certainly a big part of it, but that's not a way to run a government. <laughs> no, but it, it seems <laughs> like it's, it's a very uh, prevalent one. Yeah, I mean, people like, you know, reading, that's why people like reading the uh, opinion polls or the, you know, horse race polls. Uh, and people, you know, like to look at elections like it is a sport. Uh, but, you know, when we're talking about how we should run the state of Nebraska and what's a good policy idea, that that should be the consideration, not what is fun to look at. Well, but yeah, but I, I run into this problem sometimes too, you know, just even the being a, a radio personality on a public radio station, you know, my dad's even described it as like, you're trying to make the discourse more boring, which is maybe a healthy thing. But like, if two people are having a fist fight, and two people are having a boring conversation, you might look at the fist fight, right? So like, how do you, how do you get people to want it to not be so intense and partisan and, you know, you know, I don't know, just dramatic? Well, it, Lack of partisanship does not mean that it will lack intensity. Uh, there have been, you know, lots of, I mean, we have nonpartisan legislature, we have nonpartisan elections. I ran in a, you know, a race that had two people, that both of us were Democrats. Um, and I think it was a pretty, uh, you know, we, we had a very robust race. Uh, and I think that happens uh, in Republican on Republican legislative races as well. Uh, and so I think and I think you probably will see a very robust conversation in the Rep Republican gubernatorial primary this next year. Uh, so I think just having two people in the same party does not mean that it will not be interesting uh, and will not have uh, dis, you know, just very distinct positions or uh, have a substantive conversation. Um, but the, yeah, the important thing is to make sure that the elections are an opportunity for candidates to speak to the electorate, to the population, to deliver what they believe is the vision, their vision for the state, and have people have an, an actual choice about, you know, the direction of the state and what things are important to them. And that should be how we run our elections is to find, to get the best opportunity for people to have that. Another element of running elections, obviously, is this debate over election integrity and how much needs to change going forward. And I know I think it was just some, you know, they're talking right now about, uh, you know, do we need voter ID in Nebraska and yada, yada, yada. So, I mean, what, how do you feel about the voter integrity issue and uh, should our elections be changing in any meaningful way going forward? Well, I think that the key to elections is to make sure that, they, that everyone has a opportunity to vote. 
which means not putting up artificial hurdles to drive down uh, voter turnout. And uh, voter ID has been demonstrated to be a hurdle for poor and uh, minority people to have access to the ballot. Uh, and so it disproportionately affects uh, those people and is more or less artificial because uh, there's not a lot of demonstration uh, evidence that it makes elections more secure, that makes uh, that there's a lot of people who are out there voting who are not the individual who uh, they're purporting to be. And so it's just creating this um, you know, thing that's going to stop people from participating. And our objective should be to make it as easy for everyone who is uh, a voter uh, of voting age to vote, uh, meaning that we should make it easy to register, we should make it easy to you know, get your, your ballot in the mail, we should make it easy for you to go and vote early, we should make it easy to go vote in person. Um, we should make sure that it is secure and safe and that we can trust the results. But in Nebraska, we have, uh, to my knowledge, no problems. We have a great system. Uh, all of our elections um, are efficient. We get the results pretty quickly here. Uh, and we have faith in the results. Uh, and so any attempt to um, you know, add voter ID here, I think, is uh, has an ulterior motive to uh, it's, it's trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist, and in the, in the, the byproduct of that will be um, suppressing the vote of some people. So what's the ulterior motive there? Well, suppressing the vote. I mean, suppressing the vote, I mean, it seems like you're saying there's maybe more to it than that, though, right? Cause it's, it's, is it suppressing the vote of people of uh, one political party? Or, you know, how, how, do you, how do you identify, I guess, what exactly the motive is and who's, who's being targeted? Well, I, I think in other places where voter ID has been pushed, obviously, you know, uh, can't say what's going to happen here exactly. But uh, in places that have implemented voter ID, you have seen a uh, making it harder for uh, poor people to vote and people of color to vote because it's harder to get an ID. Um, if you just look in Douglas County alone. Uh, to get a driver's license, I think now you can go down to Sarpy County on Highway 370. Uh, you can go out to um, what, uh, West Maple. I don't think there's any place inside the 680 I-80 corridor anymore inside the you know the inner circle of the city where you can get an ID, which means uh, the places where most uh, you know, black and brown people live in Omaha, it's not readily available to get a license, which means, or an ID, which means you would have to get a ride, you'd have to ride the bus, you'd have to get somebody to take you to get an ID, which will make, that's an additional burden to being able to vote. Uh, and that is, happens other places as well, where when you implement voter ID and people uh, have to now go get an ID and they don't have ready access to that. Um, and anytime you erect an extra burden for anybody to be able to vote, that's going to decrease their likelihood of their participation. And we should not be erecting extra burdens to decrease participation. So, I mean, that, that type of targeting, do you, do you attribute that to just like a numbers thing, like people of color maybe are more likely to vote Democrat, therefore that's why we target them, or does it run deeper than that? I, I would say it's mostly numbers. I, I mean, I guess, I don't know, you'd have to ask somebody who's trying to do it. <laughs> well, they're not going to tell me. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm a bad person, you right. know. Like, so yeah, I don't know. You you get into these situations, I think, with a lot of politics where people know kind of what to say, and they don't always say what they actually are trying to do or what they actually believe a lot of the time. And I, I, you know, to bring it back to climate change, I think that's a lot of the case where, like Lindsey Graham, maybe this year will acknowledge that it exists, but I think there's a more complicated situation of what he will say in public than just. You know, oh, he, he believes it now. You know, he's seen enough evidence. He's thought about it enough. He's come to a conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, you, you've seen a lot of different political issues. You've seen some of the conversation, at least in the unicameral. I know you said uh, in your family it seemed like you maybe were not encouraged to go into politics. How would you feel about your kids going into politics after seeing what you've seen? I think I'd, I would be happy if they did. Uh, whenever I go anywhere, when I knock on doors or when I go to a political events, I usually bring my oldest daughter and – um, she's very engaged in, uh, you know, activism. We go, we've gone and protested, we've marched, we've knocked on doors, we've gone to events. 
uh, and she always has good questions and a, and a good take on you know the issues of the day and uh, so you know I think I'd be happy for her to <laughs> to engage in, in politics further uh, but you know ultimately that's up to her and to decide that balance or any of my kids but the other ones are too young to <laughs> at this point do you see yourself sticking in the state legislature for a while well I've got three years left in this term and then I guess I decide if I run again in what is that 2024 yeah. uh, and that's that's the max you can do eight years in legislature um, but you know right now I just finished my first but 90 days session 86 days I think is what we went uh, and I would say you know be, be happy to run again in four years are there big priorities for year two that we haven't covered here uh, well the criminal justice stuff is going to be big uh, you know we're going to be I want to my focus on that is going to be when we have a conversation about building a new prison I don't want that conversation to happen without a conversation about reforms to um, access to to mental health care, access to drug and alcohol treatment, um, access to rehabilitative services, uh, making sure that people who once they've served their time get a real opportunity to become members of uh, our community again by getting a job and getting a place to live. Uh, I think we've done a great disservice to ourselves um, by not making sure we embrace people once they've they've served their time and making sure that we can get them everything they need to not find their way back into the system. And so I want to make sure that our whole conversation engages not just around that, but around reforms in sentencing and, and reforms in, in incarceration at the lower level and those early encounters with uh, the criminal justice system. And so making sure we take a holistic view of the criminal justice system before we build in a new prison. Because if we, once we build a new prison, that's a sunk cost. We're going to fill it up. And so we need to make sure that we're having that conversation all as one. And that's, you know, part of my focus for next year. And uh, getting people interested in climate? Well, in yeah, continue, continuing to work on that bill. My climate change bill is still pending. Uh, and, you know, take another swing at getting that um, out of committee and onto the floor so we can continue that conversation and see if, um, you know, we can get more people on board next year than we got had this year. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all that, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to me today. I appreciate you having me. I love the show, and I'm just happy to be here. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.